Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 17. I call this psalm a righteous man's prayer. Now, we know that none of us are righteous except that we have righteousness through Christ. We try to do right. And, uh, of course, God makes us more righteous than we were. Righteous is to be right, do right uh, before others. And uh, But we are really only accepted as righteous through Christ because the Bible says that he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, that's substituted righteousness. And then as a result, well, uh, we try to live a better life and a Christian life. And this is, my, you might say, David, as a man before God, was trying to live right and do right. And he had many problems and he had many enemies. He had uh, many trials. And yet he was still considered to be a righteous man before God. And so in chapter 17, Psalm 17, he says, Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry, give ear unto my prayer, that goeth not out of feigned lips. So David here wanted God's attention. He says, Hear the right, attend unto my cry, give ear. Notice these three words. Hear, attend, give ear. Sometimes we just, when we come to God in prayer, we want to get His attention, don't we? We want Him to listen. And that's what David was as much as saying. God, I want you to hear. I want you to attend. I want you to give ear to what I'm about to say. It doesn't hurt to console or consult with God and console yourself that He's willing to uh, listen, that you need to get His attention. We know that it's not necessary for a man to act this way. You just call upon God and say, God, here's my problem, here's my need. But He wanted... Definitely to show that it was fervent, that he was right with God. Hear the right. He wanted to stand in a right standing before God. And he came with a sincere and earnest desire for God to hear him. You know, the Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5 verse 16. Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. He, want, he says when it says that goeth not out of feigned lips, he means that he was trying to do right in the sight of God. Look at verse 2. We find that David here wanted a personal visit from God. He says, let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Whatever you say and do to me, whatever is the answer to my prayer, he wanted a personal answer from God. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. David, of course, wanted God to have a personal inspection of him. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal, the things that are right. So you, you better certainly be right with God when you invite his personal inspection. We know that as human beings, we're sinners, aren't we? And when we invite God's personal inspection, we better be in fellowship with God. We know we have enough wrong with us. But we know one thing for sure, that if we say, God, I want you to search me and try me and, and look at me. Uh, in fact, if you uh, turn to Psalm 139, Psalm 139, and verse uh, 23 and 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's getting real close, isn't it? Psalm 139, verse 23. It says here, 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Not just my inmost being, but even my thinking, my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Search out any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When you invite this kind of inspection before God, you better be sure that you want and desire fellowship with God. This holds your place in the psalm where we're studying because we try to take these verses and dissect them and get as much as we can out of them. So verse 2 again, Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. He knew that God could speak to him, and God does speak in various ways. Let, let the word come back from your presence. Speak to me in some way that I'll know that it's from your presence. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So God in various ways all through the Old Testament, including David, spake in various ways to the prophets. But in the last days, He's spoken to us in His Son or by His Son. That's Hebrews 1 verse 1. Now then, I want you to notice verse 3. It says, Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Here's a whole lot of things that we need to consider. First of all, he says, Thou hast proved mine heart. God had tested him, hadn't he? Thou hast visited me in the night. God prove us by trials and testings. And doesn't he sometimes speak to us in the night seasons? Cause us to think upon our ways and upon the ways that we have trodden that day. And whether they be right or wrong. We need to consider our ways as he visits us. He says, Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Thou hast tried me and, and shall find nothing. David was pretty confident that he could uh, open up his heart before God. David is speaking here uh, as having gone through the fires of persecution. Verse 1, he wanted attention. Verse 2, he wanted a personal visit from God. Verse 3, David had gone through the fires of persecution. And he was no novice at this. The Bible says in James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. How do we stand up when temptation comes? We have to learn to endure temptation, do we not? Blessed is the man. The word blessed means happy. Happy is the man that endureth temptation. We have to learn that this happiness can only come through uh, us trusting in God even during temptations. David knew here the secret of concentration. He says, I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Consecration. I am purposed. Remember old Daniel? He says, he, he purposed in his heart. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel 1 and verse 8, I believe it is. It was in captivity. It says in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. When you uh, definitely are concerned about your life, you have to have something done on purpose. You have to uh, have a determination. You have to be uh, consecrated to that purpose, dedicated to that purpose. 
willing to yield to that purpose, willing to be guided in the will of God and the things of God. And uh, you can't half-heartedly do anything. The Bible says a double-minded man is un- unstable in all of his ways. So you better make up your mind where you're going, determined to do it, purpose to do it, not have any doubts about it. But when uh, people... Uh, try to do too many things in too many different directions. That's where you get mixed up. You need to keep your eye on the goal. And so purpose. Daniel wanted, certainly, the uh, determination of consecration and purpose in his heart and mind and soul. And in that verse also he speaks of the trials. Thou hast proved me. Mine heart, thou hast visited me in the night, thou hast tried me, and shall find nothing. Are we willing to be tried? I had someone to ask me, what about uh, Abraham offering up Isaac, calling Abraham, and how that that might uh, hurt one's faith and trust in, in God for him to call for such great sacrifice on the part of Abraham. But what consolation is in the whole story that God never intended him to do it and he wasn't going to permit him to do it. That's a consolation. He was just putting Abraham on the spot to see where his face stood. That's the whole thing. It came to pass that God did test or try Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here am I. What did he mean when he says, here am I? Lord, I'm right here where you want me to be. I'm ready to do anything you want me to do. Here am I. He says, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, to a mountain, uh, into the land of Moriah, and mount, one of the mountains that I will show thee, and offer them up for offer him up for a burnt offering. He immediately went, took his young men with him, on the way, and he told the young men, he says, You stay here behind, I and the lad will go yonder and worship, now listen, and come again unto you. And Hebrews 11 tells us that he was accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. In other words, in Abraham's heart, he says, if, this, if I have to go through with this and I'm willing to follow God, God will resurrect him because he said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And he went through that test, that fiery trial and that great test. And he came out victorious because he knew that God was a God of not only a life, but of resurrected life, and that he would raise up Isaac. See, God had made promise to Abraham. He says, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And Abraham's faith knew that God's word would not fail and that Isaac had to live one way or another. Without a doubt. He's got to live. And he says, if God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. And he said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And he knew Isaac had to live. Well, that's, that's faith, isn't it? And so the, the real consolation in all the testings that we go through and the trials we go through is that God's going to keep his word. If you read 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, if you will, let's look at this. In verse 6 and 7, it says this, Wherein you greatly rejoice, Oh, now for a season, if need be, who knows if it needs to be, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now look at verse 7. That the trial of your faith, the testing of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. We say gold is precious, isn't it? Of them, all of the 
things that we can think of. Gold is most precious of the metals. Of most precious metal. Most highly valued of all. And it says, your testing is much more precious than of gold that perishes. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So don't think that your testing will go unrewarded or unnoticed uh, by the Lord. He's going to see it all. Okay, back in our Psalm 17. Look at that verse again and see if all that comes into focus. Psalm 17, verse 3. Thou hast proved me, uh, proved my heart, mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. He says, my mouth shall not transgress. We know if anything transgresses, it's usually our mouth, isn't it? And a lot of other things that we can control. But James says that tongue is that unruly member that's hard to control, which no man can tame. And we, as much as we battle with that thought of tongue control, it's the greatest battle that any of us have in life, is to control the tongue. Most of the time we speak before we think. It would be good if we could reverse that order, wouldn't it? And think before we speak. It's only by the grace of God that we, we can uh, somewhat control that unruly member of our body that is set on the fire of hell, James says. Terrible when it gets out of control. Quiet more than we need to speak, especially if we would speak that which is wrong. I think I remarked one time God gave us one mouth and two ears. He wants us to hear twice as much as we talk, probably. But anyway, regardless of that, we know that uh, it is a hard thing to control the tongue sometimes. Look at verse 4. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. David knew his weakness of the flesh, and he knew that he needed, he needed to rely upon God's help to preserve him and to keep him. And he says, concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. He needed God's help, didn't he? Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? In Psalm 119, verse 11, verse 9 and 11, uh, the psalmist said again, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. That's what David was saying here. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. So it's only as we hide God's word in, in our hearts. And it says, His word... In his word we should meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You know, the secret, the greatest secret of all is keeping God's word and having God's word before us. Let's go on down to the next verse now. Verse 5 says this, Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. David knew uh, that prayer was also needed. And so he says, hold up my footsteps. Hold up my goings in, in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. Our footsteps will slip if we're not careful. David uh, realized the need of prayer. He did not trust his own wisdom and ability as Peter uh, of old. Remember, Peter tried to trust his own ability at one time, and finally he learned the lesson, didn't he? 
Remember, Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee to prison and to death. So, Though all men forsake thee, yet will not, will not I. He says, I'll never forsake you. I'll never deny you. What? He said, before the cock crow, thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Peter was so confident in, in the flesh. And later on, he learned his lesson. And he went out and wept bitterly after he denied the Lord. And then after the resurrection, John chapter 21, Jesus said, Lovest thou, Simon, Simon, lovest thou me? He says, Lord, you know I'm fond of you. You know I love you. But Jesus used the word of divine love, and, and Peter used the word of human love. He's, he says, Do you love me divinely with divine love? And Peter says, Well, I'm fond of you. And he asked him three times, and he never did come up. Finally, the Lord came down to Peter's word. He says, I know, Peter, that you're fond of me. So you, you can't... Uh, he was not so anxious then to say, Lord, yes, I love you with all my heart. I'll never forsake you. He, he had learned that lesson. That he learned that. So it says, uh, Hold up my goings in thy paths, that, thy, that my footsteps slip not. Oh, we need to learn to trust uh, God's help. Remember at one time Peter was told to watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Not trust his own wisdom, did he? Ability. Let's look at the next verse. He says, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. He said in verse 6, I have called upon thee. So if he had called, listen. David knew that the Lord would answer his prayer because of his past experiences. He says, you know, God's helped me in the past. He's answered my prayers. But you know, i got this great problem. What's he going to do now? Will he still answer my prayers? David relied upon his past experiences that God would be the same to him in the future, in the present in the future, as he was in the past. You know, the Lord said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Right? When you think of... When you think of the past, remember when, when he was confronted with the, the Goliath? He said, the same God that delivered me out of the, paw of the mouth of the bear and paw of the uh, bear and the mouth of the lion. He says he will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. He relied upon what God had done for him as he tended his father's flock. And he says, the same God that was with me there will be with me when I face the giant. So if we've got a giant before us, if we've got the real great enemy before us, remember that God has delivered us in the past and He's going to answer again. I think that's one of our greatest failures. We say, oh, God did this for me, He did that for me, but you know, now I'm faced with a great, big, huge giant. What am I going to do about this? And listen, He's going to take care of that. There's no one, no power, no obstacle that He's not capable of handling. And sometimes we feel like that, well, you know, this one's too big. This is too great a problem. But it's not for the Lord. And David knew he would answer his prayer. Experience is really a good teacher if we'd let it be. Experience is a good teacher. He says, I have called upon thee. He knew what he'd done in the past. For thou wilt hear me, O God. And he had this confidence because he had called upon God. Now look at it. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. So he wanted him to hear him again. So uh, uh, David had a clear conscience before God, and it increases our faith when we have a clear conscience, by the way. Look at 1 John 3, verse 21. 1 John 3, verse 21. And you'll see what a clear conscience does. 
It says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, what is it? 1 John 3.21 Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, if we have a clear conscience before God, if our heart is not condemning us, then have we confidence toward God. And he says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments, we obey His word, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Do the will of God. Clear conscience, obedience to the word of God, and doing that which is pleasing to God, doing the will of God, will bring sure answer to our prayers. The Bible says that... Uh, that turneth away his ear. Listen, from hearing the law, even his prayer is abomination. So if you will not hear God's word, don't expect God to answer the prayer. And he's talking about wicked, the wicked especially. But I believe even if a Christian finds himself disobedient to the word of God, he's going to find that God's not going to answer his prayers until he gets back in fellowship with God. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, is abomination. So if we're, willing, if we're not willing to be obedient to God, then how can we expect Him to answer our prayers? All right, let's go on hurriedly. Uh, look at verse uh, 7 now. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou, that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Okay? Show thy marvelous loving kindnesses. Loving kindness. And then he says, O thou that savest by thy right hand. That's the right hand of power. And who does he save? Them which put their trust in thee. And he, he saves them that put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. From the enemies, right? David knew it was part of God's nature, nature to show his loving kindness. Just one move of his hand will bring deliverance from those, to those who trust him. The Bible says in Romans 12, verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He knew that God's protection was with him. Look at this. O thou that savest by thy right hand them that put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them from the enemies. It's Isaiah 54, verse 17. That says, no weapon, listen carefully, that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. And it says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So, every tongue that will rise against you in judgment, and no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And Romans chapter 8 says, if God be for us, who can be against us? So here we have the assurance of God's help. David had the assurance of God's help. To be saved out of, from the hands of the enemy. Look at verse uh, 8. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Boy, here's two wonderful things. David prayed for divine protection. The apple of the eye is the pupil, isn't it? And the eye is the best protected part of the body, by the way. Protected by bone, set in a socket. You have bone all the way around it. The apple of the eye is the pupil of the eye. And it's protected by a lid to cover it. And by the lashes of the eye. And it's also constantly washed with the tears, with 
uh, the water or the tears that flow. So it's the best protected part of your body. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 10, it says, He found him, he's speaking of Jacob. Let me read verse 9 and 10. Or his people, uh, Israel, Jacob. Uh, it says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the waste and howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him. Look at that. It's his portion. He found him, he led him, he instructed him. And look, he kept him as the apple of his eye. The apple of old was kept just as sure as the apple of God's eye. Now, you know, you and I protect the eye, do we not? In any part of the body, that eye, if you get a little speck of dust in there, you've got trouble, have you? Until you get it out. I'm talking about just the least little thing. And that's the, the, the part of our body. If anything at all happens to it, we give it the first attention. Because it needs that kind of uh, attention. And God says He keeps us as the apple of His eye. That's how important we are to Him. And the psalmist says, Keep me as the apple of the eye. And he says, Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. There's so much about the apple of the eye that we can't leave this for a moment. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2. Reading this, I found something else. If, we, if God keeps us as the apple of the eye, and if we as human beings pay that much attention to the pupil of our eye, to, uh, to our eye. If we are that much concerned, and if God is that much concerned about uh, us, then in Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 2 it says, Keep my commandments, now that's what we're told to do, and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. God says we're to keep his law as the apple of our eye. Someone wonders how important it is and how uh, delicately we should be concerned about keeping God's word. It says, keep the law, the law as the apple of thine eye. You see, we have a responsibility as far as the word is concerned. David prayed for, back in our psalm now, for divine protection. He says, keep me as the apple of the, of the eye, hide me under the shadow of thy wings. And we're hidden in the hollow, hollow of his hands. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I give them to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And he says, I and my Father are one. So we're, we're protected in God's hand. His wings, under his wings, we're warmed and protected again. Look at he said, what he said here. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Remember Jesus cried out over Jerusalem and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. They had an opportunity to come and they didn't. That, uh, he said another time that he beheld the city and wept over it. And he said that much the same thing in one of the other Gospels. He said that he would have protected them 
if thou hadst known what was in thy day, and now it's hid from thine eyes. And he's speaking of the same thing, that he would protect those that would come under the shelter of his wings. Then, I want us to notice the next verse, verse uh, 9. It says, From the wicked that oppress me, from the, my deadly enemies who compass me about. He wants protection from his enemies. We have a lot of enemies as Christians. In fact, the Christian life is a warfare, and we need his protection at all times. We have those that would slander us. We have those that would uh, speak evil of us. We have those that would persecute. But in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses beginning with verse 11, we're told to put on the whole uh, armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, here's our enemies. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, we've got an enemy to stand against, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it says, stand therefore, look here, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Realize that we need the protection from our enemies, and we need to fight the warfare that we have to fight. David had his enemies of God's protection at all times. Verse 9 again. Now, from the wicked that oppress me, from the deadly enemies who compass me about. Can you imagine David, as good a man as he was, the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart, having so many enemies? i of something I read. Maybe it will apply a little bit here. How people speak ill of us, talk about us as Christians. Plato said, when men speak ill of thee, live so that no, no one will believe it. What you can do, just outlive them. Just keep on doing right. And if they speak ill of you, well, just, just let them prove it to someone else. You just live so no one, one else will believe it. And we can only do this by the grace of God. We need God's help to so live that no one will believe it. I've had a lot of people tell things on me. Say, well, make up your own mind. And you just keep on doing what God wants you to do and let the chips fall where they may and finally your enemies will say, well, you know, that didn't do any good. This didn't do a bit of good. He thought they'd stir up something. I've had plenty of them that tried to stir it up too. In 36 years down to this day from February 1st, 1959, the beginning of this church, there's been plenty that tried to stir up things, but thank the Lord that... Uh, you know, you graduate from a few of those things. It doesn't mean that there's not always a danger. But I'm thankful for good Christian people that want to have fellowship with one another, want to be in harmony, want to love one another in spite of our differences, want to forgive and forbear one another. And it doesn't mean that we uh, do not uh, maybe see things different at some times, but on the other hand, we can always come together on the Word of God and, and, and love one another. Okay, let's go on with this. Uh, in verses 10 through 12, he describes the enemies. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They, they're selfish. They have now compassed 
us in our steps. They have set their eyes uh, bowing down to the earth, like as a lion that is grieved of his prey, and as a, as it were, a young lion lurking in secret places. This is how they're described, verses ten through twelve. Right. Surrounded by selfishness and pleasure, just the way to their own needs become very selfish. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. In other words, everything is for them. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. And then they're like a lion. They are a great enemy of the soul. They are proud and they seek the destruction of God's people. Remember Peter says, Your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And how are we to handle that? You know, sometimes we quote a scripture, a verse of scripture, and we say, boy, that's trouble. Your adversary, the devil, he says, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. We say, oh, that's terrible. The next verse says, whom resists steadfast in the faith. Tells you how to handle it. Sometimes we quit reading Scripture and we just read enough of it to get ourselves in trouble and not, not enough to find the answer. And you read the next verse and it says, Oh, look, all i got to do with that fellow is resist steadfast in the faith. And when he accuses me, I say, My face in the Lord. He died for my sins. Uh, you say, Well, he condemns me because of my sins and shortcomings. Yes, but I, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Give him his answer if that's what he wants. You've got plenty of answers for him. Just let him rave on. Let him rave on. Let him stew in his own juice. And that, you know, finally he'd get tired and leave you alone. Resist whom? Resist steadfast in the faith. And do you know sometimes we give ourselves more trouble than the devil gives us? We like to blame, said the devil made me do it. A lot of times it's our old carnal nature that makes it happen. All right, look at the next verse. It says in verse uh, 13 now, Arise, O Lord. He says, God, rise up. Arise, O Lord. Disappoint him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. In prayer, we can have victory over our enemies. So it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, it's being the God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something else it says. Disappoint him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. Now then, there's two ways to take this. You know, the wicked sometimes can be God's sword of justice to correct us. But on the other hand, there's a marginal reference that says, by thy sword. So whether God uses the wicked enemy to correct us or he takes the sword to do the judging upon our enemies, we're still going to come out all right. Because one is a form of chastening and the other is a form of, of uh, taking care of us and protecting us from the enemy. If you have a marginal reference, it says, which is thy sword, it says, by thy sword. Most authorities agree that it's talking about the fact that God does deliver us by the sword of his mouth. And then verse 14 says, from men which are they, uh, thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world which have their portion in this life, whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasures, they are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. He's talking about the, the uh, wicked men in the world that God may use. He can use them for his purpose. 
on the men which are in thy hand, O Lord. Sometimes there are certain uh, great kings or leaders or powers that be that think they're out of God's hand. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. I wonder why sometimes dictators on various uh, wicked and uh, mean-hearted and mean-spirited dictators are permitted to be on uh, in power in, in parts of the world. Well, they're going to have their day. They're going to have their day and it's going to be over. And God can bring them down. The Bible says He removeth kings, He setteth up kings. And He can, he can take charge of them in their due time. And you know things are turning in that direction. They've got to look over in Russia now. Those those fellows over there, they come on the, the throne or get in power, and then all of a sudden, what happens to them? It says if this one gets too wicked and too mean, we'll we'll just put another one up there in his place. They got more changes of power over there than I guess anywhere else, or as much as anywhere else. Yeltsin's losing his uh, grip now, isn't he? quite a bit. There'll be someone else they say stays drunk about half the time. I don't know that to be true, but I've heard that uh, that's why he doesn't make it too many good decisions because, you know, it affects your uh, judgment. But anyway, the thing about it is, God is able to put up men, take men down, and uh, set up kings, remove kings, and he has all power in this realm. We find that they'll have their portion in this life. It says they have their portion in this life. He's like the rich man. He had his portion in this life. They're not concerned with anyone outside of their own family relationship. It says they are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. It's their own and nothing else. No one else. I want us to look at the uh, 15th verse now in in closing. David says, considering all this now, as for me, you know, sometimes we have to consider all the trials, all the enemies, all the problems, all the, the uh, ramifications. We consider everything on every hand. He considered trials. He considered enemies. He considered calling upon God. He wanted to get God's attention. He was crying out to God. He says, God, arise and do something about it in verse uh, 13. Arise, O Lord. And after all that, he says, as for me, you have to come to a final decision as to how you stand with God. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. This was the final outcome. He looked forward to the day that he could stand before God with a good conscience and be like him. David knew that he would die and then awake in the resurrection. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, that our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, in verse 21, shall change our vile body, this is a vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. God is able to make us like himself. First John chapter 1, verse 3, I mean, First John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now verse 2. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But listen. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man, verse 3 says, that hath this hope in him, 
purifieth himself even as he is pure. The very assurance of salvation and of resurrection and of being with the Lord is what? It's, a, it's an inspiration to do the will of God. Some people say, if I believe like you Baptists that I was going to die and go to heaven for sure and Jesus is going to meet the Lord face to face, He's going to resurrect me, I have eternal security, I'd go out and I'd live a mean life, I'd just enjoy the pleasure of sin. No, you wouldn't because it says, every man that hath this hope in him does what? Purifieth himself, even as he is pure. It has the opposite effect. It makes you want to live for God because of His uh, blessings upon you. See, that's what... A real assurance does. It makes you want to be a better Christian. And so, notice, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied. Now look, David knew that nothing would would uh, bring complete satisfaction short of a glorified body. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Is there anything else in this life that will thoroughly, completely, and totally satisfy any individual? Nothing else. Because our full satisfaction will never be realized in this life. In a desire to go forward, to prosper. And it seems like if you prosper a little bit, you want to prosper more. If you get a thousand dollars, you want five. If you get five, you want ten. If you get ten, you want twenty. If you get one house, you want other stuff. And if you get one car, you want more cars. You know, all these things. See, man is never fully satisfied. And he will be satisfied completely and totally in the presence of God. It was said of an evangelist over in, uh, in uh, Great Britain one time. I think it's up in Ireland or, or Scotland or Ireland one. Uh, that this evangelist was preaching and he had a great crowd. And he, he had gotten the congregation out by saying, I'll give a thousand pound note to anyone that can come in this building on this revival they were having and tell me that uh, that he's completely satisfied with what he's got. And boy, they had one old atheist guy back there in the congregation. The whole building was full. And he jumped up. He says, Preacher, he says, I want to accept your challenge. He says, I'm satisfied. He says, I've got lands. He told how much gold and silver and how much land he had and how much possessions he had. And he said, I'm perfectly satisfied. And he come down the aisle and he says, Give me that thousand pound note. He says, No, you can't have it. He says, why? He says, you're not, you're not satisfied with what you have or you wouldn't want this one. You know, fellow never satisfied it. And, you know, he just wanted more. He come to you and prove it. Well, the, the point was made, wasn't it? But we'll be, we'll be satisfied one day, won't we? When we shall awake in His likeness. And, you know, I don't think we'll desire anything else.